0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneier Zalman-Newfield. In The Books That Made the European Enlightenment, A History in 12 Case Studies, published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2022, Gary Cates looks at the multifaceted significance of bestsellers from that time. Cates explores a crucial innovation of the age, the rise of the erudite blockbuster, which, for the first time in European history, helped to popularize political theory among a significant portion of the society. Gary Cates is the H. Russell Smith Foundation Chair in the Social Sciences and Professor of History at Pomona College. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Gary.
0: Thank you, Zalman. Great to be here.
1: So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: So all all my career has been specializing in the 18th century, Uh, My first book, The Cirque Social, The Girondin, and the French Revolution, published by Princeton University Press back in the 1980s, looked at a political faction, the Girondin, in the French Revolution. But what particularly fascinated me even then was that this political faction owned and operated their own publishing company. So even then I was interested in the connection between politics, political theory, and publishing. Uh, Then in my second book, uh, Monsieur Dayon is a Woman, uh, published by Basic Books, originally in 1995, and now being put out by Johns Hopkins University Press, that was the story of a trans diplomat in the 18th century who lived half their life as a woman. And um, it was a story both about uh, uh, gender and gender identity and about politics. And the most innovative move I made in that book was to actually uh, uh, reconstitute Down's library so I could read the books that they read. And there were 50-60 books on gender, that is 18th century books on gender. So once again, I became interested in how 18th century individuals read and the impact that books made on them. So in that way, this book, the books that made the European Enlightenment, is um, continuous with those interests.
1: Right, I see. And... um To to get started uh, uh, for our discussion, for listeners who are not uh, so familiar with this period, how do you define the Enlightenment? What, What exactly does that mean?
0: So, in fact, one of the things this book does is it allows us to see the Enlightenment being made, and it allows us to see what 18th century readers themselves made of the Enlightenment. So, I define the Enlightenment as a reforming movement among Europe's elite classes, starting in the last years of the reign of the French king, Louis XIV. Louis XIV dies in 1715. So somewhere around 1715, when the French and Europe realized upon the death of Louis XIV that... that Europe was about to change with his death, uh, that's when the European Enlightenment takes off and then develops until the French Revolution. But in fact, what my book shows is that the Enlightenment did not know it was an Enlightenment until the 1760s, until really midway through the century. And so a book like Montesquieu's Persian Letters that is published in 1721, uh, it's a a novel uh, uh, about life in the 18th century and travelers from uh, Iran, Persia. Uh, That book becomes a fundamental enlightenment text really thought of that way only in the 1760s. So in a way, you could say the Enlightenment, although beginning in 1715, is not conscious of itself until mid-century.
1: Right. Uh, And um, you note in the beginning of your book that much of the scholarship on the Enlightenment comes from philosophers or literary scholars rather than historians. What's distinct about a historian's treatment of the Enlightenment?
0: Yes, I think that is so important to ask. I appreciate the question. Uh, When philosophers, literary critics, and and political theorists study the Enlightenment, they are, of course, studying it almost as a form of archaeology of their field, asking what ideas today in literature or philosophy or political theory are important because they were uh, produced during the 18th century Enlightenment? As a historian, I'm less interested in the legacy or trajectory of certain ideas after the Enlightenment in the 19th and 20th century. And I'm trying to insist that the Enlightenment was made in the 18th century and then it was over by 1815 at the latest, uh, after Napoleon. And so I'm, I'm interested in charting the making and the development of the Enlightenment rather than its legacy.
1: Right. And you note that the Enlightenment was uniquely uh, uh, an 18th century European phenomenon. But what was uniquely 18th century European about the Enlightenment? I think
0: earlier scholars would have answered that question uh, listing certain key Reforming ideas, the ideas, for example, of popular sovereignty, which you can find in Rousseau, Um, ideas of human rights and freedom uh, of expression that you can find in the writings of Voltaire. My own um, answer to that question has really been guided by a German philosopher, social critic, Jurgen Habermas, who theorizes that the 18th century developed, invented a critical reading public. And it's that critical reading public and the way that they read these books that I'm calling the Enlightenment, that I think is the is the most important feature of the Enlightenment, because a critical reading public is itself um, a foundation for any liberal society. So I'm focusing less on the ideas than I am on the institutions that produced Enlightenment thinking.
1: Right. And that and that responded to it at the time, rather than that responded to it centuries later. That's right. We're
0: trying to see the Enlightenment in the making at the time. So readers may have um, misread or read in their own way or read texts that we read differently today. And to see how a book or a text changes from one generation to, uh, to another, that's what I'm trying to show as we, as we do these case studies from the early to the late 18th century.
1: Right, and certainly... Um, in your book, it becomes very clear that um, as you mentioned already, that your focus is not uh, uh, primarily on the ideas uh, within these books, but rather in their reception or in the relationship between the author and uh, the reading public during the lifetime of the author and of these books.
0: One of the problems that I see in scholarship on the enlightenment particularly as as exhibited by philosophers political theorists and literary critics is that they're interested almost exclusively on the author's intention on what the author thought the author was trying to say or argue in a particular piece Um, i'm what concerns me most is the relationship between the reader and the author. Um, the Enlightenment is made not so much by what the author intends, but what readers get out of reading these texts and how they express what they think the book means to their family and friends, and that's really the heart of the Enlightenment. Now, in an earlier period, frankly, before the Internet, there's no way that this kind of social history of reading could have been done, at least not on the scale that's European-wide. But with the Internet, with bibliographic databases and readers' diaries now being put up online in a searchable way, we can begin to find enough data that we can get at the reader's perspective and the publisher's perspective.
1: Right. Um, And so you're particularly interested in quote-unquote bestsellers, uh, uh, books that were bestsellers of the Enlightenment. How do you define a bestseller during the Enlightenment? Well,
0: here I rely on the great work of Richard Scherr, who in 2006 uh, wrote um, uh, The Enlightenment and the Book, which was a study of the Scottish Enlightenment and particularly on Scottish publishing and publishers. And he defines a bestseller as any edition that went through 10 or more editions during the 18th century. The only change I make to that is because I'm thinking or uh, European wide, I add, and it must have been published in two or more languages. So I'm interested also in how much a book was translated um, as a marker of popularity and dissemination.
1: Right. But uh, you you note that there's a, a difference between what you're calling the bestsellers and books that were the most popular throughout Europe during the 18th century. Those are not the same thing.
0: That's right. When we talk about Enlightenment bestsellers, those must be distinguished between the most popular books of the 18th century. So, for example, the most popular book in the 18th century was clearly the Bible. And so far as I know, the Bible is not an Enlightenment book. So so, uh, there, there were also popular chapbooks like Aesop's fables that, that, uh, that were extremely well read in the 18th century. So you're right. I'm not suggesting that enlightenment bestsellers were the most popular books of the 18th century. There's, there is an important distinction there.
1: Right. And in uh, you note know that in eight, uh, 1783, the German-Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn criticized people of his day in relation to books and reading. What was his criticism?
0: Yes. It's so interesting that Mendelssohn goes on a kind of rant in his own book, Jerusalem, uh, in the 1780s, in which he complains that, There's too much reading going on (laughs) in Europe. And what he means is that he longs for a golden age in the past that he's nostalgic for when people went in person and conversed with each other. He was living during a time in which if you had a disagreement with another scholar, you didn't go and meet the scholar at a coffee house and talk it through with him. You actually wrote a kind of op-ed to a newspaper and you published your disagreement in that form. And he thinks what that leads to are much uh, a kind of nasty, polemical writing. And uh, the, uh, the reason why I begin the book that way is, of course, it's so prescient and it sounds like our times today in which we complain that social media leads to kind of nasty editorials of one another and if we would just meet in person we could talk it through in a much more civil and polite way and that's in essence what Mendelssohn was saying in 1783 now what Mendelssohn missed of course is that if we restricted everything to the circle of people that Mendelssohn met in person they'd all be men like him And the value of the book is that it can be read by women. It can be read by former slaves. It can be read not just in Europe, but in the European colonial world and globally. And so the, the, the Mendelssohn's Enlightenment would have been, if he could have turned back the clock, a much, a much smaller, more narrow, and restrictive Enlightenment uh, than was possible through book publication.
1: Right, point, point well taken. Um, how prevalent, given what Mendelssohn is talking about though, how prevalent was reading in Mendelssohn's time in Europe?
0: Yes, what's unusual about the 18th century is that uh, middle classes, elite classes, and especially noble classes discover book reading, discover reading. Um, And this is a time of not only growing literacy, but it's a time of growing libraries and uh, librarianship. Uh, all kinds of libraries are started in the 18th century where people can both store books and where other people can access books. So it's very common for a bookstore in a city to next door begin a a lending house renting out their books instead of selling them um, on a day or week basis. And this makes books that are expensive much more affordable because instead of readers having to buy a book and own it for a much smaller fee, they can essentially rent a book by the day or by the week and then turn it back and read another.
1: Do we have a sense of I mean just some numbers even if they're kind of um you know rough estimates of just how many uh people uh, sort of ordinary citizens throughout Europe were were literate and able to read and engaged in reading during this period.
0: So we know literacy is growing and we know literacy is growing in most parts of Europe but it is highly uneven. This we can say that um In Northern Europe, literacy rates are higher than Southern Europe. Part of the reason for that is the religious differences. Uh, Protestants, especially Calvinists, believe that every child needed to learn how to read the Bible uh uh in order to understand the word of god um that was less important in catholic countries in southern europe likewise cities literacy rates are higher than in the countryside now also literacy rates themselves don't really mean that much because often it's whether a person could sign a contract and so we don't know If the person that signed the contract could actually read the contract or whether they could read every word so there's a wide range of literacy um, and it varies across Europe but clearly we're talking about say in Paris probably half the population was literate by the second half of the 18th century
1: Wow. Wow. And speaking of the Bible and reading the Bible, what percentage of the books being read at the time were religious and what percentage were secular in nature?
0: So here again, uh, we start the 18th century with a very high percentage of books in the religious category. And as the century goes on, the percentage of bestsellers in europe that are religious declines there's a clear demand for more so-called secular books um, and there's less interest in theology another way to say this is that latin the of course language of the catholic church and the cosmopolitan language of europe in the late Middle Ages and the 16th century, 17th century, books published in Latin drop off in comparison to books in the vernacular of the country. And those books are increasingly secular.
1: Right. And uh, you mentioned before that you're especially interested in what readers were doing and how they were engaging with books. So you describe the reading habits of several individuals who lived during the Enlightenment era. One of these people is a British man named Thomas Thistlewood who lived a good deal of his life as a wealthy slave owner in Jamaica. Thistlewood kept a diary in which he describes both reading many Enlightenment books and raping many women, including black women he enslaved. What does Thistlewood's example say about the Enlightenment idea that book reading and education would automatically lead to moral uplift?
0: Yes, so Enlightenment philosophers told themselves again and again and now I'm going to quote uh, Condorcet, the late Enlightenment philosopher, who said, "Enlightenment renders virtue easy," which means that the more books you read, the, in a sense, the more moral you will become. That enlightenment is not just stuffing the head with information, but it is actually allowing a person to live. A better and more moral life. And I think we still have much of that at least hope or philosophy today in many of our civics education, but Thistlewood shows that there can be, and was in the 18th century, like there is today, a disconnect between the education one receives and one's moral behavior. Uh, Here's Thistlewood, Um, owning slaves, raping his slaves, whipping his slaves daily, while not only reading Enlightenment texts, but reading Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws and Rousseau's Social Contract, and taking notes on those sections in which both of those authors uh, cry against slavery. So how could Thistlewood take notes, read them, read them closely, jot down those phrases and not have them have the impact. And it's because he, like others then, and he, like others today, um, exercised what might be called a kind of radical compartmentalization, where those two things were just disconnected. And it's an important lesson for us not to confuse um, book reading with moral improvement, as many of them did in the 18th century.
1: Right, right. And what was The Adventures of Telemachus, and why was it so instantly popular when it was first published in 1699?
0: Yes, so this is the first book that uh, that I deal with in, in my book. And The Adventures of Telemachus, I think, will surprise many Enlightenment students and many Enlightenment scholars that it was far and away the most popular book of the Enlightenment. Because frankly, Most Enlightenment students today, most Enlightenment scholars, Enlightenment historians, have never read The Adventures of Telemachus. And frankly, there's good reason why they haven't, because it's actually a very hard book to read today, despite how popular it was. Uh, it, it, it It becomes popular instantly for a few reasons. One is that it's a sequel to Homer's Odyssey. And Homer's Odyssey was very popular among European elite classes then. But the main reason is because it emerged, it leaks out very fast, it's published anonymously, but it leaks out very fast that its author was the Archbishop Fenelon. And Fenelon was the tutor to Louis XIV's grandson. And so here you have a kind of insider in the royal court writing a book. um, And what happens to Fenelon during this same period that the book is published is that he is exiled for different reasons. He's not exiled because of this book, The Adventures of Telemachus. He's exiled because of his religious mysticism that is judged by the Catholic Church to be heretical. But the two things, that is, Fenelon's political thinking in The Adventures of Telemachus, along with his exile, get conflated. And so within 10 or 15 years, the reputation of Fenelon is that he was a political dissident who told truth to power, and that's why he was exiled from the court of Louis XIV. So he was made into a kind of political martyr, and that led to the book's popularity across Europe.
1: Right. And what was the actual motivation on the part of Fenelon for writing Telemachus?
0: Well, it was part of a genre. Called The Mirror for Kings, in which you take a dauphin and you write a kind of political guidebook for how he might rule when he becomes an adult. So The Adventures of Telemachus is a kind of like Star Wars adventure story for an 11-year-old boy who someday will be king, um, in which it lightly shows him... Uh, negative and positive models of rulership across the ancient Mediterranean world.
1: Right. And how did uh, readers of Telemachus living in different countries in Europe take away different messages from the same work?
0: Yes, one of the most interesting parts of the story of this book in the 18th century is how it is reframed and reimagined uh, and republished. So what I argue in this chapter is that in 1715, there is a new edition published of Telemachus in which there's a foreword that describes the book as a work of political theory. It never was seen like that before. It was really a juvenile adventure work with a little bit of politics thrown in. Uh, but after 1715, it's recognized as an important work of political theory. And that's why when the Enlightenment reaches this stage of kind of self-consciousness as a movement in the 1750s and 60s, Fenelon's Adventures of Telemachus is regarded as as a kind of founding Enlightenment text
1: right, and so you you mentioned the introductory essay that Andrew Michael Ramsey published uh in nineteen in seventeen seventeen along with the text of talamachus, making the argument that Fenelon's work was a serious contribution to political theory, according to Ramsey, what was the political uh 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 insight of talamachus?
0: yes, according to ramsey's forward, it's that fenelon understood that kings had to rule with virtue and that the virtue that they exercised was on behalf of their people and this may seem like a simple notion but civic virtue becomes a a hallmark of enlightenment ideas and so Ramsey was able to fit, to kind of shoehorn phenylone into that mold.
1: Right. And um, shifting gears a bit, uh, moving on to a, another chapter in, in your book, what was um, Montesquieu's uh, Persian Letters, published in 1721, and what did it say about religious toleration?
0: Yeah, so um, Montesquieu's Persian Letters, is a fictional tale, a kind of novel, before there was a novel, but before the invention of the modern novel, it was a fictional tale about two travelers from Persia to France, um, and their perceptions of French political life, French religious life, and of course their Muslim encountering Catholics in France, And the perceptions of these Muslims um, as outsiders was both um, funny and profound because it, it it seemed to give a critical apparatus so that Frenchmen could see their own religion and their own government more or less as an outsider. At first... Persian Letters was taken to be um, a satire, and no one really took the book seriously as a work of politics. Uh, But after Montesquieu, the same author, publishes Spirit of the Laws in 1748, people go back to this earlier work of 1721 And they realized that Montesquieu was not only a satirical novelist, but that there is much political theory in the Persian letters, and it should be taken far more seriously. So, for example, we see the Catholic Church placing the Persian letters on its index of forbidden books only in 1762, that is 40 years after it was first published. And in that way, you can see that, As the century develops and as the Enlightenment matures, here you have a work that is no longer regarded simply as a satire, but is regarded as a serious political novel.
1: Right, and what do these two works that on the surface seem very, very different, the Persian Letters and the Spirit of the Laws from Montesquieu, what do these two works share in common? They
0: share in common a hatred of what was called then despotism, what we might call tyranny or absolute monarchy. Um, Montesquieu was very afraid that too much power was being concentrated in the French monarchy. And he tries to develop liberal constitutional principles to not overthrow monarchy, but to reform monarchy and keep it from becoming tyrannical. And religious toleration is a hallmark of one of Montesquieu's liberal principles, both in the Persian letters and in spirit of the
1: laws. Right. And uh, what does Montesquieu express, um, what view does Montesquieu uh, express in the Persian letters regarding suicide? And how is this viewed How is this view received at the time? Yes, I think if this is one of the
0: uh, surprising, at least this was surprising to me when I researched the book. I had been teaching Persian letters to my classes uh, really for decades, and I always regarded the suicide letters, there's a couple of them. Uh, as um, relatively marginal, a kind of digression Montesquieu takes. Sometimes I wouldn't even assign them uh, to my classes. But I I, I came upon a work uh, uh, that described readers in Portugal who were caught, uh, these were college students at a university in Portugal, in the 1770s, that were caught reading Persian letters, they were interviewed in front of the inquisitional courts. And one of the readers identified the suicide letters as being core to the book's theme, at least as far as he was concerned. And what Montesquieu does in those letters is he is 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 he advocates for the decriminalization of suicide? At the time, in every European country, suicide was considered a crime, and uh, one's parents could be prosecuted for the suicide of a child, or property could be taken from the family of someone who committed suicide, or, or the family could be fined in some other way. And so, what Montesquieu Advocates in Persian letters is that suicide ought to be something that is decriminalized, that is regarded as the choice of an individual, and, and that um is 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 seen as something that is perhaps regrettable, but fully in control of the way an individual controls the other parts of his or her life.
1: Right. Clearly a very innovative and uh, um, sort of radical view at the time, and maybe for some people even today. Um, uh, You write about Voltaire's history of Charles XII and Montesquieu's uh, work, Considerations on the Causes of the Greatness of the Romans and Their Decline. Uh, What are the differences in these two authors' approach to writing history?
0: Yes, so I compare them in one chapter in part because I want to show how popular history as a genre was in the 18th century. It it, it was remarkably popular. But these two histories, sometimes we put Voltaire and Montesquieu kind of in the same sentence, in the same breath, because often they stand for many of the same ideas. But the way they wrote history was completely different. Um, Voltaire wrote an, an adventure story emphasizing narrative, telling a good story like a kind of novelist, uh, and the history of Charles Twelfth, which which is Voltaire's most popular book in the 18th century. And that will surprise even Voltaire specialists today, because Voltaire wrote so many books, and so many books that we regard today in the 21st century as so as so much more important than his history of Charles XII. But nonetheless, it was truly Charles XII that went through the most editions and was the most popular. But the problem is that he chose a recent historical figure that had only died a few years before, Charles XII, the great king of Sweden, who ends up losing a momentous battle in 1709 to Peter the Great's Russian army. And that's when Russia emerges instead of Sweden as the dominant power in northern Europe. And Uh, Voltaire, throughout his life, has to keep rewriting this history either because he gets the facts wrong or because there's less analytic rigor than we would find in Voltaire's other historical writings. So as he matures as a historical writer, we find him adding various prefaces and afterwards to give this biography kind of more heft and more seriousness montesquieu's roman history on the other hand is um completely analytical it's 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 almost like the way that a rigorous academic historian today writes for a university press he's he 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 rarely goes through the lives of individuals. He's interested in these very large systemic questions of why empires rise and why empires fall. And these why questions lead him into a work of deep analysis, almost philosophy. Um, and readers were expecting another satire or funny book like Persian letters, a light read, and they, and they say, what is this? And they found the work at first troublesome, and it took a while for the Roman history to become itself a bestseller and so renowned.
1: Right. And uh, in what way was Montesquieu's work on Roman history a refutation of Machiavelli's uh, uh, attitudes towards Roman history that are captured in his Discourses on Livy?
0: Yes. Uh, Montesquieu was very much engaged with with Machiavelli. Uh, the place where he disagrees most with Machiavelli Is that Machiavelli suggested uh, argued that it was again civic virtue Roman civic virtue that made Rome great and essentially when Rome lost its virtue it lost its greatness Montesquieu said that well it's not that simple uh, Roman civic virtue was essentially a front or a screen for violent military conquest. Rome was inherently expansionist, Montesquieu argued, and you can't have it both ways. You can't be an... This is what Montesquieu argues against Machiavelli. You can't embrace civic virtue and be... Imperial and expansionist, and rule by conquest.
1: So it sounds like Machiavelli, um, Montesquieu has a much more kind of um, um, clear-eyed view of of empires and how they function.
0: I think that's right. I think that's why the Roman history is still readable and read today in 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 in, in uh, politics courses and history classes. It it really is. Uh not yet out of date for that reason. It teaches us a lot about the relationships between republics and imperialism.
1: All right. Speaking of the continued influence of Machiavelli of, of Montesquieu's work, in what ways did Montesquieu's work on ancient Roman history influence Edward Gibbons' monumental work on the same subject?
0: So Voltaire's philosophical letters is a kind of play on a kind of sequel to montesquieu's persian letters where montesquieu had two travelers from persia come to france voltaire has himself as a traveler in england and so it's voltaire himself that observes various parts of english politics and english literary life And there, what Voltaire wants to say kind of intertextually to Montesquieu is you don't need people from an exotic world thousands of miles away to comment on our problems here. You can just go next door. Let's just go next door to England, cross the English Channel, and any Frenchman uh, who throws a mirror of... England onto France will see that here the English have managed to achieve incredible economic prosperity because they have put into place a kind of political and religious liberalism. That is, although people of different religions may not be able to join the government and belong to parliament, they have in England in the 1730s um, full toleration, they can exercise their religion as they see fit, and the society uh, welcomes them and welcomes their contribution. Correspondingly, uh, the different checks and balances of the English system provide a kind of political freedom that is not found in any other European country. So Voltaire writes these uh, 25 letters as a traveler um, that deeply admire England and more or less call for French reform along the same lines.
1: Right. And staying with the philosophical letters, what does Voltaire write in that work about inoculation, and how do these views relate to the link between science, learning, and material improvement?
0: Yeah, I found the inoculation chapter to be absolutely central to Voltaire's book, and it is actually central. It's letter 11 of the 24, 25 letters. And There, what Voltaire says is that um, he, he had been describing earlier in the book the empirical work of the philosopher Francis Bacon, and what he sees in inoculation is the application of regular people, of Baconian empiricism to everyday problems. So here we have the wife of the English ambassador to the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, a- and she is in Constantinople and she uh, she is able to observe how Turkish women inoculate their babies with smallpox she's never seen such a thing but what she sees is how splendidly it works to keep them from catching smallpox or making the smallpox they catch much more mild and not life threatening so she herself there uh, inoculates her own children and then she comes back and 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 has a royal princess in england uh, inoculate members of the royal family, the children of the royal family, and and so Voltaire sees that as philosophy, science, uh, in operation, being applied and improving people's lives, and so that's it's the mo- it's it's one area of the book where you can really see what one scholar has called the practical enlightenment, that we're just not talking about ideas abstractly for their own sake. We're talking about ideas and a, a mode of thinking that can improve the condition of ordinary people.
1: Right. And um, uh, what is distinct about Samuel Richardson's novel, Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded?
0: Well, I want to say one more thing about Voltaire's Philosophical sure. letters before I go on to Richardson. And that is Of the 12 books that I cover in this book, and each one is a case study, each chapter can be read on its own, although the book does have, as you described at first, um, uh, a, a overall umbrella argument. But in the case of Philosophical Letters, this is the only book of the 12, of the dozen, In which the government successfully suppresses it and this is something I think that's unappreciated by scholars today because of the renown that philosophical letters later achieves in the 20th and 21st centuries as as you put it and you were right to do so a kind of hallmark milestone of advocacy for religious tolerance uh, and political liberalism but in the 18th century, it is only published as an independent book for five years because the government ends up making Voltaire an outlaw and forcing him out of the country. And the only way that Voltaire can kind of come back in the good graces of French culture is to basically cave into the government and never to publish this book independently again. So It's published, but all the letters are dispersed, and it's published in his miscellaneous writing where only specialists could really recapture them and find them. Um, So I find that quite interesting. Uh, This book will later in the 20th century be called the first bomb that was thrown at the Ancien Régime. And many students of the Enlightenment have learned that It was this book, Philosophical Letters, that helped cause the French Revolution. But in fact, the book after 1739 never appeared in the 18th century. So it was a bomb that went kind of diffused. Now, Richardson's novel, Pamela, is, of course, very well known to literary scholars. It's one of the first great modern novels. And Richardson will go on to write two other bestsellers, in, uh, um, uh, in his life. But what's so interesting about... Th- there's two things that fascinate me about Pamela. One, that it is usually not regarded at all as an Enlightenment work, and it's very understudied of how it becomes absorbed into the Enlightenment. And then the second thing is that Samuel Richardson was not like Voltaire and Montesquieu, Um, learned scholar that that wrote in many different fields. Samuel Richardson himself was an artisan printer, and he never stopped printing all of his works and a lot of other people's works. He never stopped doing his trade as a printer. Um, And it was watching him as a printer kind of invent this novel, which he didn't intend to, he decided what he was, uh, booksellers had commissioned him to write a kind of guidebook for young people on letter writing, on different forms of letter writing, writing to your parents, writing to your friends, writing uh, for a job, that kind of thing. And he gets caught up in his own guidebook and before he knows it he's written a novel a story in letters about this chambermaid pamela andrews
1: Wow, that that is quite something um what was the the central question asked by richardson's novel pamela
0: so the central question that most interests me is whether is, is the extent to which John Locke's notion of freedom and autonomy extends to a working class woman? That's what Richardson is really exploring in this novel. What kind of agency? do ordinary working class girls, I'm calling her a girl. She's 15 at the start of the novel, maybe 20 when the novel's over. So a teenager, to what extent do adolescent female teenagers in the 18th century have agency? And the answer is not very much. And so it's both a, it's a light social criticism of the state that uh, it's, it's kind of the other side of what Voltaire was calling attention to. Voltaire and Montesquieu later both praise England for its political liberty. But Samuel Richardson's asking the question, well, there's political liberty for the elites, but does it trickle down to ordinary working class people? That's essentially the question he's asking. But he's asking it through a romantic relationship between a servant girl and her master, where at first the master wants and intends to rape her and take her virginity from her. And she's defending her virtue and her virginity and reminding him on every 10th page that he is acting like a rake and not a gentleman.
1: Right. And who was the intended audience for David Hume's work, Essays Moral and Political, which began to be published in 1741?
0: Yeah, so I think we need to roll back the clock a couple of years with Hume. He publishes these essays in 1741, but in 1739 he had published what he had hoped would be his great magnus opus, A Treatise on Human Nature, which is indeed studied in every philosophy department in every college and university today, but in the 18th century no one read it. And Hume was deeply disappointed. Hume thought that this was going to be the big, best-selling philosophical text of the 18th century, and he was wrong. And in that disappointment, and in thinking about how he could refashion himself as a writer, he more or less stumbled upon the essay genre, decided to try it out. The audience was a kind of elite cocktail party audience, notably mixed company. He was writing for women as much as he was writing for men. He considered himself, as he called it, an ambassador from the world of the learned to the world of the conversationalists. That's kind of how he put it. And so these were Small, serious essays, but eminently readable that one could read in a 20-minute sitting and then go to one's dinner party or cocktail hour and talk to uh, with one's
1: friends. Right. And one of those essays is of national character. Why was this essay of Hume's uh, 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 so controversial at the time and still so controversial today? Yes and I'm uh, uh, although it's becoming
0: better known this this essay of national characters until recently one must say that this has been an understudied part of those who study David Hume's works there is a footnote attached to this essay in some ways the footnote has nothing to do with the general argument of the essay itself. It's like many footnotes are sometimes (laughs) tapped on because Hume wanted to get it in there. It's also worth saying, before we get to the foot, well, let's just say the footnote is a terribly racist statement in which Hume Baldly says, without any ambiguity, that um, people of African descent are inferior to white people. And there's no mistaking his intent in this footnote. And the, the issue in Hume's scholarship has really been, well, this is a minor essay. It's one footnote elsewhere in Hume's writings. He does come out against slavery. What are we to make of this? Most scholars, frankly, have said not all that much. It's certainly regrettable, but you can't judge all of Hume's work on this one footnote. But the way I come at it, as someone who was trying to understand intellectual and cultural history through the guise of book history and publication history, is that let's not focus on Hume's intent. Let's focus on how the footnote was employed in the 18th century, what happened to it, how it was used. And lo and behold, what we find out is that Hume's footnote becomes um, weaponized, if you will, in the debate over slavery and the slave trade. And so those advocates of the slave trade who think the slave trade is critical to England's economic success will use Hume's quote and Hume's authority and his notoriety to defend slavery. Um, and that's really the tragedy of the footnote, is the impact that it has on fueling racist ideas.
1: Right. Um, well, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we're going to run out of time. So let me ask one final question. Um, your book, of course, has these distinct chapters that focus uh, um, intensely on individual um uh, important works. Is there a, a, a general uh, takeaway that you hope readers will get from reading your book? Yes.
0: I think the general takeaway is that seven from about 1748, when Montesquieu publishes Spirit of the Laws, to 1789, the outbreak of the French Revolution, we have this unique period that I have termed the, the era of the erudite blockbuster, where we have books such as Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, published in a 1,000 pages and two volumes, followed by Rousseau's Emile, followed by Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and Reynolds' History of the Two Indies, and there are others that could have been in the book as well. These are books of erudite political thought, they're not easy books to read. And yet these books I'm able to show were as popular as any novel, any book of poetry, any play that was printed. They were among those who were reading enlightenment books, among the most popular. So we have a moment in the second half of the 18th century when something like Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations or Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, are coffee table books, are books that are really being read and talked about by, say, small-town lawyers. And it's hard to imagine even today um, academic erudite books like that becoming so popular. Maybe Piketty's capital in the 21st century is something that gets closest to it. But um, it, 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 uh, uh, it's a unique period that defines, I think, the mature Enlightenment in Europe.
1: Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
0: Thank you, Zalman. This has been a pleasure.
1: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.